News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's certainly a very big day for Canadian history today. Members of an Indigenous delegation from Canada have arrived in Rome and they are having historic meetings with Pope Francis this week. Let's get the latest on what is happening. Joining us now is Crystal Gumansing, our Global News European Bureau Chief. Hello, Crystal. Hi there. What is happening with these meetings? Well, we saw two uh, delegations have their private um, sessions with Pope Francis this morning, local time in Vatican City. It was the um, Métis National Council delegation as well as the Inuit delegation. These are very small groups, um, you know, maybe a, a couple of survivors, a couple of elders. And in, uh, you know, the situation, for example, with the Métis National Council delegation, also a couple of young people, some some fiddlers. And these are very... Very private um, meetings that are meant for the survivors of uh, residential schools to be able to express their experiences, to to share their pain and their sorrow, and and also their hopes for the future. Um, small gifts are presented in the the case of the Métis National Council delegation. There are some young fiddlers that also performed. So these are. Um, painful uh, meetings for for some of the survivors we know that you know there's a, there's a number of people who are with them to help support them through these meetings so they um they're having these these really private sit downs and and the all the, ultimately the goal is to see if one of the calls to action from the truth and reconciliation commission's final report was for that apology from the pope and uh we're waiting to see if these delegations two took place today another one will happen on Thursday, um, if if that will in fact happen, you know, in addition to the Métis National Council delegation, there's also the Inuit Council delegation. Uh, again, a number of survivors, a number of elders, all sitting down. Um, you know, these are private meetings, so we don't know exactly what's said, but we are hoping to get some information later today um, if the the elders and survivors uh, are, are able to share a little bit about what um, what they they said to Pope Francis. Right. What is the ideal outcome here? Crystal, what are these groups looking for? What do they want to see? Yeah, it's it's really hard to sort of give an overall sense because these these are very personal stories. These are very personal experiences. So everyone does have their own individual hopes for these sit downs. Uh, but the collective goal is really what was stated from the Truth and Reconciliation's uh, call to action, which is an apology from you know the very top of the Roman Catholic Church, which of course is Pope Francis. Um, this is not the first time that um, first. Nations um, delegates are meeting with the Pope. Of course, we saw it in 2009. It was Pope Benedict the 16th. There was a similar sort of delegation set up. They went to the Vatican. Um, they had those meetings, but it didn't result in a formal apology. There were expressions of sorrow, but not a formal apology. And that is still the overall stated wish when it comes to to the step forwards when it comes to um, reconciliation and healing. Right. You mentioned this is the beginning. So is this going to be going on for a few days all week yeah so we had two delegations the the metis delegation and, and as well as the inuit delegation they met with pope francis today on thursday the um the first nations delegation will be there meeting with pope francis and then on friday everyone will come together not only survivors and elders from those private sessions but support workers and additional people who are also 
in Vatican City for this meeting. They will all come together. They will all join with Pope Francis, and there will be a larger meeting and larger discussions. And after that, that's when we are waiting to see what will come of this. Will Pope Francis make a trip to Canada sometime this year? Will there be an expression? Will there be a promise of an apology? Will something be said before um, the delegates leave Rome? So that's really the big day that everyone is looking to. And of course um this this will be um a, a busy but a really emotional time for a lot of the elders and and survivors it certainly sounds like it crystal thank you for your time on that you're welcome this is mornings with simi as you've been hearing in the news this morning there are meetings between indigenous delegates from across canada and pope francis going ahead this week in fact they've gotten underway a little bit this morning now this was the initial trip remember it was postponed back in december and there were concerns at that time about the uh, rapidly spreading omicron variant of covid 19 but here we are at this very important point with the meetings getting underway today So who is there? Well, we've got groups of esteemed elders, we've got survivors, we have Indigenous youth, and they want to talk to the Catholic Church about its role in reconciliation. For more on this, we're joined now by Rachel Ann Snow, who's an Indigenous legal advocate. Thank you so much for being back with us. Good morning. So what have you seen so far? Are you pleased with how it's going so far? Uh, I think there are a number of people who are questioning the expenses and what exactly this uh, group is doing over there um, because we know that uh, the Pope, even if he apologizes, I think that people on the ground here, the grassroots people or the people affected in Canada need to hear that in the country. Right. So you're saying, does this feel a bit disconnected then? It feels disconnected. It also feels like, this is the second time they've gone. This was a call to action, TRC's call to action number 58. They went in 2016. They've gone back again. This is the second time they've been there. They said they've taken some leaders this time, but at the same time, it's not. it doesn't seem to be cohesive or there wasn't a, a gathering of uh, nations from here, the grassroots people, and seeing what they had wanted to have said to the Pope. Right. So that's interesting. So you're saying perhaps not enough planning was done. Was there not enough consultation on this? I think the consultation was obviously done at high levels with the Assembly of First Nations, the Perry Bellegarde is over there and some of the regional organizations. But we've repeatedly said as grassroots First Nation Indigenous advocates that the grassroots voice needs to be consulted further. It can't just come from the top. And is that what you see going on right here? Well, I see that there's going to be some kind of uh, wrangling happening, but there there's other wrangling that's been happening here in Canada. There was a court case in Saskatchewan where uh, a judge pretty well exonerated the Catholic Church and their um, and uh, allowed them not to uh, pay recon- uh, uh, pay in restitution to some of the First Nations, along with the data that they have not been able to. Retrieve. So there's other things that are happening where there are fights still on our, in our homeland before there is, you know, the visit to the Pope. Right. So what do you want to hear then? What do you well, think, think would that, make this successful? Uh, well, I doubt that they're going to get an apology because I think if the Pope does apologize, he's going to be uh, basically saying that uh, he's taking responsibility and liability for the actions. 
So I don't think they're going to get an apology. I think they're going to get some very nuanced phrases and uh, say, you know, come back saying it was very successful. You know, they got in there, whatever they're going to say. But I doubt that they'll get what they're what they're hoping to achieve. Right. So then what, I guess we would ask them, what's the point of that? Because haven't we had that before? Yes. And that's, I think a, a number of First Nation people are feeling that way that it's expense. It's, uh, you know, it's for photo ops. It's a dog and pony show. It's not actual, it's not an actual uh, tangible effort or uh, anything that will come to fruition for our people. This is not something that we hear, a perspective that we're hearing a lot of right now, though, Rachel. Does that disappoint you? Uh, yes, because I wish, uh, you know, I think it's time that uh, uh, media sources and Canada in general listen to the actual grassroots voices on the ground, because that's where we're doing our advocacy. And because we have this point of view that is not, uh, you know, kumbaya or hunky-dory and wonderful to the eyes for, or the ears of Canadians to hear, we don't get to express that opinion or that voice. But it's a very necessary and it's, it's a very real concern on the ground. Yeah. I guess the question I have listening to you bring, bring up excellent points then is what does this do for the survivors, the family members, every, the, those here in Canada who are dealing with the legacy of these schools? What does it do to have these high-level meetings at the Vatican? I, think, I don't think it does a lot. I think we need... What we need on the ground is we need um, we need actual action where there are healing groups and things that are done for the people at the ground level and for their own voices to be taken into consideration. I'm suggesting that the healing at the at the sites or at the level, the ground level, where there can be prayers or the ceremonial things that we do in our indigenous ways, using our indigenous laws and our Indigenous spirituality to try to mend uh, from our, try to mend our people with our techniques or our way of understanding. And I don't think, you know, going to beg an apology in a foreign country where, you know, we really can't, uh, where there's some kind of immunity for the Pope, I don't think that there's anything that can be done for that except, you know, to beg and ask for him to uh, make an apology on behalf of the, the locals and the going down the hierarchy for what was done over here. Right. So you're saying if you really mean it, if you really care about showing you're sorry, come here and show us you're sorry. Come here and show us you're sorry. And also Canada could appeal that decision. Canada was complicit with uh, with the churches in setting up the residential schools. So Canada could appeal that court decision in Saskatchewan and actually get the, um, actually get the Catholic Church to start paying. That would facilitate the healing on the ground and the things that we need to have happen for at the grassroots level. Instead of all these high-level talks, building an expectation, and then again, once again, like gut-punching our people when nothing comes of it. Listen, thank you so much for joining us this morning and talking about it. We appreciate that. Okay, thank you, Sammy. Have a good day. You too. That's Rachel Ansnow, Indigenous legal advocate, talking about these meetings happening with Indigenous delegates from Canada and officials and the Pope at the Vatican this week. You've been hearing a lot about it in the news. And she says, you know what? It's just another trip to Rome. If they want to see the Catholic Church show true remorse, 
then we need to see them here in this country apologizing directly to the people who have been most deeply impacted by this. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, that was quite a show the Canadian men's soccer team put on yesterday. They won. They beat Jamaica 4-0. I mean, it was amazing. And that crowd was phenomenal. It was a sellout crowd of almost 30,000 people. And it was very cold at BMO Field in Toronto. But let's talk about what a big win this is for Canadian soccer. We're going to the World Cup for the first time since 1986. Joining us now, Colin Miller, color commentator for the Whitecaps and soccer analyst on AM730. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good. Have you recovered? I certainly have. I've been up this morning doing interviews from 5 o'clock this morning, so I'm now in part of your world at this time. So, But yes, it's a fantastic occasion. So everything's so positive about the game of football. Now we've got the women's team as Olympic champions and, of course, the men qualifying for the World Cup since 1986. It's, I just think it's a magical time. A phenomenal. We also have Paul Dolan with us this morning, Whitecaps TV analyst, former Canadian goalkeeper and goalkeeper coach. Paul, how are you feeling about this? <laughs> I'm feeling uh, just as weary as uh, Colin is the night after. It was quite the night out last night, I could tell you, with the boys here. And yes, I mean, it was freezing cold as well, but I think everyone was just numb with excitement <laughs> at the end of that game. It was a celebration I haven't seen in 36 years. I mean, there must have been, it must have been numb with excitement because I saw more than one person with their shirt off in the crowd. So I thought that, that <laughs> looks cold. Yeah, that's yeah, enthusiasm. It is, <laughs> it is the enthusiasm. Wind off the lake too is just ridiculous down at BMO. But uh, like I said, I think, I think most of the players, and you saw John Herdman take the champagne over the head at Children as well, but uh, you take it on a day like that. Let's talk about the impact this is going to have. This team is just phenomenally talented, so entertaining to watch. I'll start with you on this, Colin. What kind of a difference does this make, do you think, for the future of soccer in Canada? Well, all of a sudden, you've you've had in the past in the high profile with Christine Sinclair, the Sophie Schmitz, and so on with the women's program. And now... With with the men's program with Alfonso Davies, you know Kyle Larin, there's Tejon Buchanan, who I think is a is a, and the next superstar for Canada as well. You, you've got a whole list of players that are playing at very very good levels of world football here now, uh, and real good role models, great examples for our young players coming through the systems here. Uh, Simi, I I think it's you know, the most exciting time we've had in, in terms of Canadian football for as long as I can remember. Uh, and I just think that this team, I, I believe, could cause, you know, one or two problems for the opposition when we get the, that draw come uh, April 1st. I think it's uh, a team that's full of pace. There's a, such a blend of youth and, and experience in the group. It really is. It's a team that has a bit of everything, Simeon, and it's a very, very exciting group of players to watch. Paul, does this propel soccer forward? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think the anomaly will be Canada not qualifying for future World Cups. And I think uh, what it does to inspire young players who want to continue to, you know, play soccer and and perhaps one day wear the colours of Canada, I just don't see us ever going back from this. I I must say that, you know, in 1986 when we qualified, I kind of thought we'd be back to two or three World Cups over the course of the next few decades. But uh, there were some dark times, but at the same time, a lot of the foundations were laid to what we see now. And as Colin said, the depth of the pipeline of player and the quality of player that Canada has now, 
um, I don't want to say, you know, get too far ahead of ourselves, but not only could we be a qualifier all the time, but I, I think Canada can be a, a soccer superpower over the course of the next few cycles. Okay, first of all, knock wood. That would be yeah. great if that happened. <laughs> Let's talk about our chances here, too. So, Paul, when, I know we're waiting to find out what the draws, who we're going to play in those first couple of rounds there, but how do you think we're going to fare on the international stage? Well, I know that John Herdman's goal wasn't simply to make the World Cup or even just, you know, make up the numbers and compete while you're there. Like, he actually wants to move out of the group. And, of course, without knowing who Canada will play in that group, it's hard to know. But I think that there'll be teams that will be afraid of the way that Canada plays and can adapt their game and has different points of attack with different players that can really make things difficult for, I think, any team uh, on the planet right now. You know, the United States and Mexico are among the top 20 teams in the world. And Canada's moving in that direction as well. Certainly by topping the CONCACAF table, you could make an argument that Canada's better than the U.S. and Mexico right now. And those teams constantly give some of the bigger nations around the world troubles as well. So, yeah, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but uh, I honestly think that winning a game in the knockout stage is not beyond beyond the realm of possibility here. Colin, what do you think? Yeah, I think the knock-on effect is is fantastic, Simi. I, I think we'll do well in the World Cup. I think we'll give uh, give as as my tall learned friend Big Dolly says there that there, with the pace that we have in the team and and the athleticism, we're, we're going to cause teams problems. But what I'd like to give a special mention to as well, Simi, is, is a bit of the knock-on effect and uh, the work that's being done at the grassroots level of the game throughout, and then the work that's done by. The MLS academies, the CPL clubs now, there's so many opportunities. There are so many opportunities for, for young players to come through and the, the quality and the standards throughout the game are all being raised here now. And uh, I think the, the, the knock-on is even within the country that the money that will be generated from this and getting put back into the men and women's game with the national team programmes, uh, I, I think it's a very, very exciting future for Canada um, and and it's you know it's taken some time to get to this stage, Simi. But uh, I, I think the benefits are phenomenal that the team is qualified for the World Cup. Oh, so exciting! Hey, listen, thanks for joining us this morning. My Happy pleasure. To. Take care. Bye-bye. Appreciate your time. That's Colin Miller, Colin commentator for the Whitecaps soccer analyst AM seven thirty, and Paul Dolan, Whitecaps TV analyst, former Canadian goalkeeper and goalkeeper coach, talking about the fact that Canadian men's team is off to the World Cup for the first time since nineteen eighty six phenomenal game yesterday so enjoyable to watch and now the big moment comes this friday when it's time for the draw where we're going to find out who will be playing in those first couple of games at the world cup i know so much excitement this is mornings with simi been a lot of discussion recently about you know getting rid of single-use plastics. Different municipalities have been jumping into this, right? We heard about the program in the city of Vancouver. Well, in Richmond, they also have a ban on single-use plastics that went into effect actually just this weekend. So let's find out how it works, what it means for people in Richmond. Joining us now is the mayor of Richmond, Malcolm Brody. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, good morning, Jimmy. So what does this mean then for people in Richmond? What I think it actually means is, is, is that most of the businesses have already made the transition. Uh, as of yesterday, uh, after a number of years of hiatus, uh, we have taken steps to ban the commercial use of plastic bags, the single-use bags, the foam products, 
for food service and the straws. Um, we started off in 2019 working on this project. Uh, it, it had, at that time, it had to go to the Ministry of the Environment for the province to sign off on our bylaw. And that got delayed because I believe that the province was working on kind of a more global strategy as to when you needed to get that kind of approval. So finally it did get approval, but only then did we get into COVID. So we didn't think that that was the time to introduce this kind of a change. So we've used the time, I think, effectively. We've met with stakeholders, with businesses. We've certainly worked actively with the business groups in the Chamber of Commerce uh, to let people know, first of all, what the expectations were in terms of the ban, and secondly, make sure that the businesses could uh, successfully and cost-effectively make the transition away from the plastic products to the other alternatives, of which there are quite a few. Right. So as of yesterday, uh, no more of these single-use plastics um, going forward, and I think the people have been quite accepting of it. Is there a, a bit of a transition period here then, Mayor Brody, or what kind of enforcement is there going to be to make sure this is happening? Uh, well, we announced six months ago that the March date was going to be the effective date, and so the bylaw is now in place. Uh, for the first six months, our hope is that we're not going to be going out and finding people and you know, taking draconian action against uh, the various enterprises. We'll simply work with them uh, to educate them to make sure that they're aware of what the expectations are. So uh, probably no fines or any other uh, effective enforcement of that nature for a number of months. Uh, but certainly in the fall, then the expectations are clear and everybody's expected to cooperate. Right. And so what have you heard from businesses? Have there been concerns about this? Well, certainly the businesses had concerns, uh, but first of all, they've had a long period of time to kind of get their minds around it and to make the, the business adjustments. <clears throat> the, the biggest sentiment that we kept hearing was that, that the businesses, you know, a, a restaurant or something would have a two-year supply of plastic products uh, that they did not want to just throw them away and dispose of them. So, uh, given the time period that has elapsed, I think the businesses have understood that they need to make the transition. And also, there's been a number of meetings to talk about the alternatives. In fact, there are alternatives to all the banned products, and uh, they can be fairly effectively used. So, Mayor Brody, do you see this? Is this a first step? Do you see it going a little bit farther? I mean, in Vancouver, right now, they're charging you if you want even uh, any kind of a bag or something like that or disposable cups. Do you see that broadening in Richmond at all? Well, in terms of the fees, uh, we've not mandated that the business has to charge a fee, but we do expect that they, uh, you know, if you want a bag at your supermarket, you'll get a paper bag or something and there'll be a small fee attached. Now, we haven't mandated what the fee will be, but it's up to the individual businesses to what they want to charge. Now, I know that uh, Vancouver, uh, for their restaurants and whatever, for the disposable cups, they have a mandatory fee. Uh, we've definitely not gone that way. Um, 
Because, as I understand it, the the money doesn't go in into any kind of an environmental protection fund or anything like that. It's just kind of a an added fee or a tax on that particular drink product. So we haven't gone that way. We'll continue to review the situation to see whether we should make more uh, widespread or strident uh, types of uh, bylaws. Um, but at this point, we'll just monitor it and see how it goes. Okay, so we'll see how it goes. So for now then, starting yesterday, if you live in Richmond and you order takeout or get a container, it should not be foam or styrofoam or anything like that. that yes, exactly right. And, and the straws should not be plastic, cannot be plastic straws. And uh, the bags can't be those, uh, those plastic bags. It's got to be some other product. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Anytime, Cindy. Thank you. That's Mayor Malcolm Brody, Mayor of Richmond, talking about bylaw that just took effect in uh, Richmond yesterday. And that is having to do with, as you heard him say, no plastic straws, no styrofoam or foam takeout containers. And so that is just happening in Richmond. But you know what? I feel like a lot of businesses have already taken these steps. And as he pointed out, have already done this. They've already moved forward. In fact, when he said the comment about the plastic straws, I thought, There's places out there that are still handing out plastic straws because I know a lot of places have moved towards paper straws or not handing out straws at all. So the bylaw might be kind of catching up to to what's already happening elsewhere. For instance, a takeout container situation. You know, I I ate out at a place um, in Surrey while I was on vacation and I needed a takeout container, needed a to-go container because we didn't finish all of our food. And yeah, they're charging. They're charging for a to-go container. It was 50 cents. And I thought, this is in Surrey. This is not where there is a charge for this kind of thing in Vancouver because of a bylaw. But I think a lot of businesses are doing this already and people have adjusted. Like, have you experienced this when you go out to eat? A charge for something where you thought, I thought that was only in Vancouver, but are they doing it where you live too? And have we just, I think we've just gotten used to that. Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. Spring break is over. Kids are heading back to school this morning. And that's the first time since the whole mask mandate in BC in a classrooms was lifted. Our contributor, Raji Sohal, joins us now for more on this. Good morning, Raji. I would imagine that some teachers, staff, maybe some students are a bit nervous about that today. Yeah, well, you know, really, actually, there's just a smorgasbord of feeling. Some people are feeling super excited, relieved. I mean, I know there's not a single person out there who hasn't had it with the pandemic, who hasn't had it with the virus. Um, I think some parents are very, very good riddance about uh, the mask mandate for classrooms in the first place. So they're relieved to see their kids go back to something that looks more normal. Um, But Every teacher I've talked to has expressed nervousness and they do expect a lot of students are still going to keep their masks on um, because for a lot of students, their families are worried about not just their child getting COVID, but like with the repercussions in the community of them bringing it home, of passing it to grandma or grandpa. Um, And there's still the widespread belief out there, I think, Simi, that that the so-called vulnerable people out there, um, the people who have to already, you know, hide from society because of immunocompromised um, states uh, that for some reason, like we don't have to worry about them, that those people should just be taking care of themselves and don't worry about them. Let's the rest of us just take off of our, our, take off our masks. I met one of those kinds of people. Her name's Holly. 
Choi. And to see her, you'd think, okay, she looks healthy. She's young. She's full of energy. She chases after two kids. She's a successful entrepreneur with her own business. But she's been on tenterhooks this whole pandemic due to being immunocompromised. When I was in my early 20s, I was diagnosed with a rare disease. My trachea used to grow itself shut with scar tissue. I had to have a number of surgeries, ultimately a major surgery where they had to remove part of my trachea, put me all back together. And it's left me with effectively the airway the size of a child. So having that small airway has just made me extremely nervous because I'm much more prone to respiratory illness. And I have a hard time recovering from respiratory illness as a result of it. Having an invisible illness, when you are running your own business, you've got small children, you seem to be thriving. And yet every day I do have struggles with my breathing, with my voice. And that constant sort of fear in the back of my mind that knowing that even sometimes a cold or flu is enough to really knock me out. So the idea that something much more serious is around me at all times has been quite challenging. So for Holly Choi, when COVID cases were really high, she did feel safer knowing that her child was going to a classroom and a school where absolutely everyone was masked. And it meant that she could still go about her own life and, and work with less worry. So as she sends her daughter to school today, the first day with mask mandates and classrooms being lifted, there is a bit of hesitation. While I know that my daughter, who is now in grade one, is really great at wearing masks. She's very diligent. She's really great at hygiene. I'm very proud of her for her age. That being said, there is times where that can't be perfect. And they're eating lunch, they're playing with each other. I know that there is a level of risk. For me, I didn't want to go so far as to completely remove her from school because I think the social benefits are huge for her. So knowing that my six-year-old is going to be at school potentially without a mask on is a bit making me feel a bit uneasy. But at the same time, we've had a long talk about it. And I've effectively said to her, you know, if you're inside and you feel like people are really close to you and you feel uneasy, you can wear a mask. You're allowed to do that. And it's probably just fine to not wear one outside but keep up with your hygiene. And that's effectively how we've left it with her for now. And Simi, I think a lot of parents have been having those conversations with their kids probably over the course of spring break. I know I have, um, I think for families where there's a, there's a multi-generational household or where someone has a compromised immunity or vulnerable health in some way, people like that are all having these conversations. I don't know that everyone is having these conversations with their kids um, because some people do feel a sense of, of good riddance. But Holly is leaning on the fact that she hopes the provincial health authorities have it right. I understand that there is a lot of nuance in the conversation and that for some families, it might not be an easy thing either. But uh, I do appreciate that the choice remains there. And I wish there was a little bit more flexibility in it, maybe around masking indoors or masking if we are mixing cohorts. It does seem like quite a bit to have it completely dropped altogether. I also trust public health's opinion, so it's hard to balance all of my feelings with what's going on, but I'm for now putting my trust in the science behind it and the science behind the decision making. 
I really, I, I sympathize with all those parents and teachers and students out there, Raji, because it's hard, right? I think even in the general public, the last couple of weeks, it's been hard to walk into a place and am I wearing one? Am I not wearing one? Should I be wearing one? Like it, we're all going through this. Yeah, I think everyone's going through this. One thing that Holly mentioned that resonated with me is she said that when she's in a grocery store and she sees other people masked up, that she feels a sense of community. I'd never heard something like that before. And it made me think about how like we can show up for each other. Uh, So like, you know, there's places where I think I'll just always wear a mask now, like in an elevator, for example, with others. Um, But yeah, I have heard from advocacy groups, including Safe Schools Coalition of BC, that that they wished um, that the lifting of the mask mandate in the classrooms was coupled with, you know, way better infrastructure. Uh, way better filtration systems of the air. Uh, That would have been nice to see across the board. We know some schools got the HEPA filters. Uh, Some schools did a great job. Uh, Some districts did a better job than others. Uh, But it wasn't across the board that uh, filtration was improved drastically. Uh, And I think also Holly's family story is a good reminder for me to have uh, conversations with uh, my own kindergartner. Uh, as she goes back today yeah. and, and throughout the week about, you know, making choices that affect other people when you're really close to someone or, or you think a uh, situation's a little iffy in a classroom, just pop that mask on. That's a good, that's good advice. We should all go by that. Thanks so much, Raji. Hey, thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the Academy Awards wanted to put themselves back on everybody's radar. I just don't think this was the way they wanted to do that because they've now been overshadowed. All the awards, things that people won, the important moments, all overshadowed by the fact that actor Will Smith didn't like something that Chris Rock was joking about, joked about his wife's hair, and he got up, walked over to the stage and slapped him on international television. Now, there's a lot going on here that we need to unpack. It's it's the assault that happened right there. The fact that he couldn't control himself. And what disturbs a lot of people as well is the fact that, you know, half an hour later, people were applauding him, and in some cases, standing up when he won an award for Best Actor for the movie King Richard. And I wondered about that, right? It was so awkward. People didn't know what to say or what to do that I wondered, are we watching some kind of bystander effect happen here that people just didn't know what to do in the moment? I wanted to talk more about that, though, the impact that that's going to have on the discussion about about violence. Joining us now is Ninu Kang, who's Executive Director of the Ending Violence Association of British Columbia. Thank you for joining us this morning. Oh, good morning, Simi. You're going to have a lot of people, I think, asking you about this today. Did you see it, and and what did you think? I didn't. Uh, I was actually packing because we're moving. Um, And so um, I got a chance, of course, to watch all the follow-ups and uh, so on. And it's exactly what you said, Simi. Uh, We saw violence unfold at the Academy Awards. We saw somebody with a very high level of positionality, Will Smith, in the academy and and actually in the world like you know he's he's top dog <laughs> if i could use that terminology uh he went in front of you know hundreds of people who were in that hall and uh he yeah he slapped uh chris and and it was violence unfolded in front of so many people and um the rest of the people were bystanders um, I understand the sensitivity of the moment. I understand that, you know, he was nominated um, to be receiving an award possibly soon, and everybody was kind of shocked. Um, and another layer to this, Simi, is that I wondered what 
policies, procedures, protocols the academy had in place if it, such incidences happen in the moment. Obviously, we saw nothing enacted. Um, everybody was just, you know, kind of still and frozen. And that's probably what was most disturbing for me in all of this. Right. I, what do you think about the arguments that are happening uh, now, Ninu, when people were saying, well, he was defending his wife and, and you know, oh, he, his, own, his own argument was, well, I'm a, I'm a passionate man and I protect my family. What do you think when you hear that? Well, that's been an excuse used by men for years. I mean, that is the, that is the you know, uh, the sort of the masculine, macho uh, persona that men have been taught over the years is you are to protect women uh, and you can use violence to protect women. Well, men also use violence um, to, and justify using violence to protect women from themselves <laughs> so that that message doesn't go too far. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, his wife, who obviously when you, when you look back on what, like I said, I didn't watch the awards, but I saw her face. She wasn't happy with the comments. Um, and um, he, you know, felt the, the, the right to use violence on her behalf. And, and also it's, it's, you also have to see that um, the, he did it in front of everybody. It was, uh, you know, his something in his thought process that made him think that he can get up in front of everyone and feel like he stood up for his wife or daughter or anyone else um, that that he would, and and that nobody would say anything. He felt completely justified in his mind to do that. And many other people have, of course, come forward and have, are also praising him. So what message are we giving to men? What we're saying is, you know, you can stay in your box and you can continue to be macho men and that you don't have to take control of your emotions, you know, read the moment and, and step in into a situation with compassion. That's the message. What do you hope people take from this discussion that's obviously going to happen today? You know, it was the first thing I thought of when I was watching this unfold last night. What do you hope, Ninu, people get from talking about this? I think it's important for people to know that there is an, violence is never justifiable, never justifiable. And, of course, there's awful things that happen to us in the world, things you know, we walk into, things we don't like, people who are saying things to us, and, and, and that men uh, have been sort of in our society culturally, the way you know, uh, men have been socialized and, and how masculinity has been constructed. It's, it's given permission to men to use violence and justify use of violence. And I hope that the conversations we have is that violence is never justifiable. And I think also what the other message that uh, I think people need to know is organizations and institutions need to be held accountable when violence happens in their workplaces or, uh, you know, in, in, in their, um, uh, you know, around them. What policies, procedures do workplaces have in place to address when violence happens? And so that people have, are empowered not to just stand and be bystanders, but be more than a bystander and find ways to intervene and interact and with each other. So I hope those are the conversations. Um, you know, I'm sure there will be many Will Smith fans who will, uh, you know, feel bad for him. They'll feel bad that, you know, he lost control. And, and you know, this, this perhaps isn't so much about Will Smith, the, the hero that 
everybody likes. I mean, I think, you know, I watched his movies and I will think more about um, that. I don't think this one incident is going to, you know, uh, put a black mark or, or a dark mark on, on, on Will Smith forever. I, it'll be interesting how he um, responds to yeah. his actions. I think that's how people will judge him, whether he takes responsibility. So far, even in his speech, I don't see him taking responsibility for the act of violence. Um, you know, he, he made uh, many other comments. So I think Will Smith has some work to do. Um, and I think he needs to come back to the public so the young audiences who are watching him as the hero will see him come out with compassion and apologize. And, and you know, I think that will be that will be a moment that we have to yet see. Yeah, we have not seen that yet. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. All right, I appreciate Jimmy, that. Thank you. That's Ninu Kang, who's the executive director of the Ending Violence Association of BC. There's so much to talk about with that incident at the Academy Awards last night. The bystander effect is also a powerful one because you had that feeling if you were watching it live like I was. Like, you didn't know what had just happened. You didn't know how to react. Imagine what it would have been like sitting there. What do you do? In that moment, do you get up and walk out? Do you say, do you clap for this person? Because a lot of people did. And, you know, is there going to be some discussion about that? Is he going to apologize? He apologized during his speech to the Academy, but not to Chris Rock. So, yeah, I think lots, lots of takes on this coming up today. There'll be more discussions to come.